And hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Troubadour podcast. And today I have sci-fi author, musician, and eclectic person of the world, which we're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff, Diane Morrison. And I first heard about her when I was searching about Troubadours for the Troubadour podcast and the Troubadour uh, magazine. So we're going to talk about Troubadours. We're going to talk about literature and its role in our life. We'll talk about sci-fi. I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff. But Diane, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I really love what you're trying to do with your podcast, and I think this is going to be great. Yeah, we're going to have a great conversation. And everybody, you could check out her work at Diane Morrison with two R's, uh, dot, or excuse me, Diane Morrison Fiction. Dot com. So make sure you go check that out. She does a lot of great stuff. She has um, an anthology, a sci-fi western fantasy antho- witchcraft anthology <laughs> with not just her stuff, but other people's stuff as well. So that's what I wanted to actually start with. Not everybody can see your whole room. They're getting a, a kind of a cut off version of everything. Maybe I'll actually zoom in on just you. I'm going to cut to just you. So if you're watching this visually, go to Facebook.com. Um, and go to Troubadour Magazine. You can watch this video if you're listening. But I wanted to talk about your room to get started with because I see uh, I see a witchcraft broom or a witch broom. I see like a half moon. I see a, a skeleton of a, a, a dragon over here. I see a cowboy hat in the corner. Um, I see a clock. That's a cool clock. I'm sure there's other things that if I looked closely, I could see better. But um, so there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I don't so know actually, if you're a genius. A, Go sorry, ahead. No, that's a pretty good representation of a lot of the things that's, I do, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I there's a violin. That. I think that's a violin, right? Um, or a guitar. That is a uh, baritone ukulele, the small one there. Okay. And those two are both uh, guitars. Yeah. Okay. And I also have a, what is it, a Merlin and... Um, a regular ukulele and a mandolin, which I'm not very good at yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> That's awesome. So why don't we talk about the stuff in your room? Let's get started by sure, that. Sure. So why do you have a witchcraft, a witch broom? <laughs> well, um, I'm also known as Sable Aradia. And under that name, I write pagan nonfiction. I've been a Wiccan priestess for about, what, 30 years now, I guess. What does and that mean? What does I, that I, mean? I know what Wiccan means from like movies with Nev Gamble, but, oh, okay. <laughs> but what, what, um, you know, and, and, uh, Sandra Bullock, but what, what is it? What does Wiccan priestess mean? Like, what does that do? I guess I, I don't know in real life what it, what that means. Sure. Fair enough. Well, okay. Uh, do we need an explanation of what Wicca is that isn't in the movies or should I start? Yeah. There? Like what, why, why are you in real life a Wiccan? So I've met in, you know, I've had friends when I was younger in college um, that were, that considered themselves pagans. Right. And they, they had very interesting ways of looking at the world. I'm an atheist. Um, I've never gone into like paganism or anything like that. And I don't know what that really entails, but I'm I'm interested in just curious what you mean by Wiccan and like, yeah, what that, I don't know what that means besides movies, I guess. Okay, well, basically, um, you know, the, the movies have just enough of a grain of truth in them to sound legit. And then usually, of course, they go into some, you know, we're going to summon demons or something. And then the horror story starts, which, of course, is nonsense. But, um, okay, so Wicca is a uh, a modern 
pagan religion. It's one of many pagan paths. There are lots of them, right? And uh, it believes basically in a divine power that is both male and female, right? And there are many different interpretations of that, including symbology. You can be an atheist witch. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no. There's nothing in our theology that contradicts that. So that's that's all perfectly legit but you can also some people are believers in literal gods and goddesses and some people believe in them as more of a metaphor for higher powers that we don't really understand right and anything in between right so um my personal understanding is a more eclectic i do believe in higher powers i don't think we really understand them nor can we and i'm not even sure that they actually um, take an interest in human affairs, even if they do exist. But hey, you know, right? Uh, uh, but I do also believe one of the one of the things about Wicca is that often we believe in quote unquote magic, right? Now, this may not. <clears throat> some people do believe in literal magic. Other people believe it's more like the power of positive thinking. Both are legit. For me, the jury is out. Right. Um, I'm not sure if it has any actual physical effect on the world or if it just changes my own mindset. But either way, I still think it's valuable and useful and I see positive effects in my own life. Magic being a focused form of prayer more than anything. Right. You focus your goal or, or you know, like it, it can even be forms of, you know, when you're say you're a basketball player and you, you know, want to get better at your game. So you visualize being better at your game and then you get better at your game. Right. Like it's, it's connected to that. Right. Um, okay. We celebrate earth as a source of spirituality. The earth is sacred to us. Right, which may or may not be embodied with the different spirits and entities, depending on your own point of view. And uh, we celebrate the cycle of the seasons and the cycle of the moon, and we see those as metaphors for the cycles in our own life. So I think that's probably the, you know, there, there's the okay. Reader's so, Digest, uh, the blurb on the back of the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds, um, it, it makes me think of, I'm a big fan of Greek mythology. Uh -huh, I, sure. I study it quite a lot, and it's it seems like um, it's its own kind of tradition, maybe even more ancient than Greek mythology, uh, probably where the Greeks originated from thousands of years before Hesiod and Homer. They were pagans of this sort, right? And that's, That is hotly debated, right? That, yeah. is a, that is a very controversial topic. Whether they were pagans? Whether um, this more... Uh, uh, broad paganism preceded things like Greek paganism or whether it was a modern invention mm. that was inspired by, right? Um, there, there have been books written to both accounts, scholarly works, which are well-researched and you could make an argument either way, I think. I do think that whether it was a modern religion or not, Wicca draws upon a more, I don't know, a more shamanic kind of view and way of interacting with the world. So hmm. I think uh, like a lot of things in Wicca, yes. And is probably the best answer to that. Yeah. So, well, I, it's very difficult whenever it's pre-literate we're talking about, right? right? So obviously there's some limitations to what we can know about a pre-literate society and, and pre-literate ideology. Although they, they do some amazing work in academia um, to kind of uncover things by secondary pieces of information. But um, so, so, okay, now I understand that's what Wicca is and, and what a Wiccan priest 
priestess means. Um, so, so that's why you have, so what does the broom represent? Cause I assume you're not like, uh, bewitched and you're not flying around on it. Right. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <That'd> be <laughs> do you, so do you wiggle the nose? <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. I, I can't wiggle my uh, nose. If, even if you believe in magic, right. Real magic works more like, um, bending probabilities than it would in say, okay, I'm going to turn you into a frog. Obviously that's really not going to happen, right? But you might uh, be more likely to draw financial opportunities to yourself, for example, or, you know, um, help someone to speed healing. And even if, you know, it, it makes you feel better, even if it isn't actually working, you feel like you're doing something anyway. I, th- I, b- I believe that there is something in that. There's been lots of studies that indicate that you know, like they did it with prayer, right? Mm-hmm. And the more Christian context in in these studies, but uh, people who are prayed for heal faster. Mm. And we 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 know enough to know that we don't know why, right? So there's something there, right? What it is, I don't know, right? Um, okay, so the the broom, right? Yeah. In witchcraft, we refer to it as a besom, which is just an old word for broom. We like a lot of that, you know. Oops. Sorry. Old, that. No, that's cool. <laughs> we like a lot of that old sounding kind of terminology, and I think we just use it because it sounds good and it's cool, right? But, <laughs> but um, it's it symbolizes uh, first of all, um, it's used in wedding ceremonies. Okay. You jump over the broom, and that indicates ah. that you're a new threshold, right? And some say that it's a fertility symbol. When you think about it, it's a furry triangle with a stick in it. So. Okay. You know, the meaning there is pretty obvious, right? And, uh. That feels like a modern thing, but okay. <laughs> I don't, I mean, maybe it, they were very fertility oriented in ancient times, of course, but I just, I don't know. I, I don't know, like, what those br- bristles were made out of and how old is the, the emblem itself? Like, when do we get that image with Wiccan? It comes from folk magic and the cunning okay. folk of maybe the 16 and 1700s. We know so not sure. that old, really. No, no, it's pretty young. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. And it's also used for cleansing, right? When you are setting up a ritual space, right? Um, you know, lots of people have churches or synagogues or temples. Witches don't. So we create our sacred space wherever we are, mm, right? And nature, one right. of the things, right. Right. And one of the things we do is we uh, brush the circle, right? Besom the circle, right? Because we do things within a circle, right? And uh, usually Wittershins counterclockwise, which symbolizes uh, banishing, right? It's in our mythology, right? And uh, it's supposed to cleanse negative influences from the area. Although there's been an argument made also that probably it's just started from, you know, you want to clean the rooms, don't trip over things when you're doing your... That's a good ceremony, idea. Right? Don't want to burn, fall right. on the fire. That's right. We <laughs> use lots of candles, so that's possible. Yeah. Gotta be careful. <laughs> that's uh, the craft, right? That's right. The movie. I just know the movies. <laughs> um the the movies did the symbolism pretty well. They just kind of went off course about what some of it meant. So, you know, the the craft in terms of how a circle looks, right? You know, that, that's not too far off. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is, um, you know, as as somebody who has been an outsider to a lot of these different beliefs, but I've studied them, especially Greek mythology, because I, I agree with you there's a lot you can learn psychologically from, you know, same thing with even Christianity and Catholicism. 
I, I think, um, in any religion is that there does tend to be some kind of focusing power. There, there tends to be an uh, application to your own life that's practical. Now, I think I would argue that there's also negative things you have to be very careful of in a lot of these religions. You have to be careful what you're taking in, you know, good and bad. And there's, you know, how do you judge that is a, is an important question. But they do have these, you know, helpful tools that, like you were talking about, like the power of positive thinking that, you know, is a very popular book. There's, you know, As a Man Thinketh, the, um, which is an extremely popular self-help book in the uh, 30s and 40s, you know, uh, Rich, Rich uh, what was it called? Um, oh, my gosh, the Napoleon Hill book. Um, uh, uh, oh think gosh. and Grow Rich. Yeah, Think and Grow Rich, which is based on As a Man Thinketh to a large degree. Like that whole ideology, and there is definitely truth to that in terms of just what it, you know, we know a lot about productivity and, you know, like you were saying, financial, but the way that those come about is by focusing your mind on one thing rather than being distracted because you need the 10,000 hours, for instance, which is, I don't know if you've heard that term before from Malcolm Gladwell that or he popularized that science where they said to master something, you need to give 10,000 hours of progressive practice where you're progressively getting more and more. That. What's that? Oh, a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, you know, it gets a good, uh, I mean, obviously it's a, a figure kind of pulled out of the air, but it's not untrue. There, there is. A, a well, that, that figure that. was pulled out from a study of Juilliard students. Oh, is it? And okay. what they found was that there, it like what it takes to become, I mean, this is what the study that Malcolm Gladwell was using, what, okay. what it, what it took to become a great like violinist or a great player was about ten, like people who actually did 10,000 hours of very progressive practice, they became great. Anybody who didn't would become good at best, right? Like, so there, there seemed to be a threshold where you need at minimum that 10,000 hours. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, I think he was in Outliers book. I've read most of his books. Okay, I haven't read Outliers yet. I've read a few of his books. Yeah, yeah. so he wrote about... Uh, I think it was outliers. Yeah, I mean, he he wrote about the ten thousand hours thing, but he he didn't say it correctly, from what I understand. The the person who wrote the study, you know, has said Malcolm Gladwell didn't really portray a hundred percent because the issue was it, he Malcolm Gladwell said just practice. So you know, this is like just if you write for ten thousand hours over a lifetime, you're a grand master. But that's not the case. You need to write in progressively more difficult things, right? So you need to try. You know, that's why one of the roles that an editor can play or somebody who's really, really astute can, who's outside of you can say, try rewriting this in this way, right? Try, try, like giving yourself harder assignments. And I, I think um, if we bring this back to, to writing and focusing on like what Wiccan can do for you and for some people who, who are in, interested in that, it sounds like it helps you focus it by the symbols and the, the mythology that you follow, the music. And it helps you focus on writing as a craft where Christianity talks about having a life purpose, right? And the, having that kind of purposefulness. Um, although they say it comes from God, so you have to find your purpose from God, which I disagree with that. I think that's problematic. And and anyway, I think that's problematic too. I that's one of the one of the reasons why I am not a Christian, yeah. right? There there are a few. That's one of them, right? Um, but what you're saying about Wicca and what it can do for you, I argue that very point. Um, I I wrote a book called The Witch's Eight Paths of Power, and uh, in that book, I had a whole chapter. There are eight 
sections, eight chapters. In the eight, uh, third chapter, I talk about the craft, right? The stuff that you do with the candles and the rituals and the correspondence tables and all this stuff that generally people think of when they think of witchcraft, right? And what it's all about, right, is using symbols to communicate with your subconscious and your conscious mind and bring them into focus together, right? That's that's what it's all about. That's why do, you do it. Do you know Jordan Peterson? Have you heard of him? I unfortunately have. <laughs> oh, okay, you don't like Jordan Peterson? Well, how can I like him? The man is a misogynist, and uh, there's there's no way to like that as a okay. woman. That would be totally against my self-interest. Why, why do you think he's a misogynist? Just out of curiosity. I think it's pretty clear in the way he puts things, right? He has ideas that, you know, people should be, you know, required to, you know, marry and, you know, he speaks of sexual capital and, you know, come on, people aren't uh, vending machines. You don't get to plug, like, you know, the right things to say or the right things to do into the vending machine and then make it do what you want, right? You know, and the fact that he... Anyway, I, I don't I don't want to get into that too much. I don't want to spend the whole time arguing about him. But if, no, I think it's pretty clear he's a misogynist, and I can't like it as a result. Okay. He does have some good things to say. I won't argue with that, right? Um, his I believe that his whole, you know, get your act together mm -hmm. uh, message towards young men is great. Right? Yeah. That's that's good, and it's doing good in the world to give credit where it is due. But in general, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we won't have to talk about that if you don't want to. I I ask because he talks a lot about symbolism, and especially the yin oh, yang, okay. and this and I have the, not heard. Yeah, the meaning is well. So yeah. I I've studied. I actually have done forty hours of work on his twelve hours of like forty hours of podcasts just on okay. his book Twelve Rules for Life. I know what you're talking about with the misogyny thing. I think it's definitely present, but I would argue. Be careful where you read stuff because there's a lot of people who really hate him. Yes. And they definitely, I mean, he says stuff that I don't agree with for sure. A lot of stuff I don't agree with. And, you know, I, I just think he often gets attacked. And it's just interesting why he gets attacked. And it's often, you know, if it's a true attack and they are truthful about it, then I want to hear about it. But so far, I've heard a lot of attacks on him and they tend to be libelous like they're not really telling the truth like the whole thing about the marriage thing that is not what he said at all and so oh, really? that's, that's yeah, interesting so because i i saw like okay i'm i believe in going to the source mm -hmm. as much as possible now okay granted like most people i don't have enough time to totally well that's part of the problem right yeah you have to yes. rely on intellectuals to help you yes. understand the situation right um, but uh but i have seen Right. Maybe it was taken out of context. I suppose that's possible. But I have seen a clip where he was discussing that idea. And OK, granted, it wasn't quite that blatant. I am exaggerating a little bit, but well, know, in the clip you're talking about, it was pretty idea. blatant. OK, I think you're you're right. So here's what why I like <laughs> I, I talked a lot about him in this podcast series, and it was a lot of it was negative against his ideas. But I love a lot of his other like he has a, the thing I like about him is that he's nuanced. And so what I think people miss is the nuance. And the reason I like that as an intellectual is because it gets me thinking, well, where, where is the truth in that? Where, so, for instance, I think we need to be open to asking questions about very tough things that make us uncomfortable. And that's yes. one of his things. And I agree with him. Now, I think he does things that I would not agree with. Um, and I you know, he puts a lot of pressure, um, like 
when you read those statements, he's definitely not focusing on women in the way that he could. And part of that might be because his audience is mostly men. And so he may be steering, you know, talking to you when you talk to a, a man, you're talking a little bit differently, you know? So I, I would never defend that. He has no misogyny in him and whatever. I think we're all flawed. And my, my point is that this, you know, like this forced marriage thing, which was definitely, that one was definitely taken out of context because he was, you know, the uh, forced enforced monogamy that was taken to mean and like actually enforced like by law or something like that. But he was just talking about like culturally, like what you, like what you would do in the fifties, which is like, don't cheat on people all the time. Like don't, don't, it's not a good thing to be, um, uh, what's the opposite of monogamy? Like what's like a, uh, what's the term? There's a term when you have open relationships. I'm forgetting it right now. Um, okay. That depends. Are you talking about it in a pejorative sense or are you talking about it in a literal sense? Well, I mean, I'm just trying to say that like what he was trying to say in that particular statement was monogamy is good and we should have cultural taboos that are pro monogamy versus open relationships. Now, I don't know if he's right about the monogamy is good versus open relationships, to be perfectly honest, but that's what he was trying to say. It's not the same thing as him saying, I want to force women to marry these I, I, these horrible men because the men he was talking about were were the, in that concept were incels which are yes. involuntary celibate guys these like loser dudes that are or he's saying are piling up at the bottom of the, so anyway it's like this whole thing but the point is that there's there's a lot to him he's an, an interesting nuanced intellectual which is what i like about him in our society that's not something we get very often we tend to get these like big you know, like big chopping axes that just say, this is the truth. Right. And it's like, the truth tends to be very nuanced. And you have a point there. That's what I, I like. I disagree about. with that. Right. I, okay. Right. Um, and as could, far as that goes, go ahead. right. Um, okay. Monogamy is good for some people and it's not good for other people. This is my personal opinion based on personal experience. Generally, mm-hmm. I find that, you know, okay, right, he, he might have a, an idea in terms of, you know, honor and balance or whatever. But first of all, I think people uh, mythologize the 50s quite a lot. And secondly, yeah, I agree. Uh, the problem with his idea is that that was only culturally enforced against women, right? Men had, you know, secretaries that they went to weekends with and mistresses all the time and nobody gave a damn, right? So, no, sorry. I, I reject your idea because, you know, the, the 50s were hardly an ideal time. They were a time when women generally, you know, like a lot of women were addicted to Valium because they were, couldn't deal with the life they were forced to deal with. Personally, I do not do well, right, in a – I'm not a person who – I admire people who are really good at being domestic, Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not I, I am not disparaging it in any way. As a matter of fact, he does have a point in that this is a, a, an aspect that is not given enough credit in our society right now. And I think it the is domestic. causing damage. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, that's you know, we need people who like to take care of the house and care for people. Mm. Right. Yeah. I think that and, and we're not getting this and everybody's being raised by strangers. And that is a problem. Mm. Right. Interesting. Yeah. But I don't. The problem is it was enforced by gender 
right? And I don't, I for one do not do well under that circumstance. I know lots of people who do, male and female, right? Mm -hmm. And I wish we had a better place. I wish we didn't have this culture where our financial situations require that everybody works, right? Because who's raising kids? Who's, you know, who's taking care of our elders? Nobody, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're paying other people to do it, which is horrible, right? I wish that we had more of a place for that. We need to find a solution to find a place for that, but it should never be enforced by gender. It should be enforced by, well, it it should naturally, it should be available to people who are good at it and want to do it. You know? It sounds like you're saying it shouldn't be enforced. Yeah. I'm saying it shouldn't be enforced. Like it should be up to you. That's yes, but it's complicated, of course, because yeah. right now, right, the way our capitalist system works, right, everybody has to work or we all die, right? So, well, that's a whole other question we could talk about. But <laughs> I think the um, the the fun, the the thing I'm getting out of this is nuance is important. That's my take. You're mm-hmm. saying that there's a problem with his message that you know even in the enforced monogamy statement of you know trying to be more like the 50s or before the 50s that there's a problem with that because it's enforced by gender rather than allowing a person to make a choice and then finding the nuance today is very important and this maybe could lead us into fiction and literature and what literature maybe can help provide with the future because sure in the in the past the way that societies have always been shaped and i think this is still true today actually so my actually let me just rephrase that the, my claim is that individual souls and societies are shaped by literature and and i mean shaped literally um as literally as you can possibly make that term and that we are you know like if you go back to the ancient greeks where they reveled in nudity and sexuality and there was you know the idea of pedophilia and homophobia didn't exist. And I don't mean little kids. I mean like 14, 15, like you had beard on your hair and we think of them as like disgusting pedophiles, but they weren't like, they didn't look, their whole perception was so vastly different about home, you know, sexuality and, and what that meant. And that was shaped by the literature that they read by, you know, who they prayed to the Homer, Hesiod, the, the tragedians, the, the philosophers and poets who revel in the, the, the architects who, you know, um, made these great um, buildings that were centered on how we view the world, the sculptures that we see of nudes, which first come from us and have been copied until recent times throughout all of history, whenever, you know, Greek was resurged and we get the Renaissance and all these great things and the troubadours we can talk about. But um, although I think troubadours are probably before that, they were like 1300s, but we can talk, save that for a few a few minutes later. But so my, my point is that literature is what shapes that homer i'm a i've read homer a lot since i was nine years old i've studied him he shaped not only shaped but he brought together the greek city-states and the greek tribes under one language one you know they all could relate if you were traveling in greek greece at that time you could go to another city-state and you could have a conversation with somebody at the local whatever hangout and you would talk about homer it could be one thing or you know the stories in in a homeric way that was true in Italy, you know, when, you know, uh, and it was true throughout history. That's building these societies through literature. Today, we have an interesting dilemma. We have a kind of a tradition, but there's such a buildup and uh, such a, it's like such a big, massive ocean that it's hitting this dam or, or you don't even know the right analogy, but it just, we're getting flooded with stuff. 
And we're, we're so conflicted that it seems like the only unifying thing is chaos. Like we don't have any unifying element anymore, which is what Peterson is all about is, you know, trying to get order out of chaos, which I think is why he's so popular. Whether you disagree with him or not, he's trying to get order. Uh, I think he's wrong in how he does it, but that's another thing. But anyway, so that's, that's my thought and thought bringing into literature. And you know, what about for you and the literature that you write? Well, it's uh, I, I, if I can talk about Homer for a minute, actually, Please. right? It's yeah. it's so interesting, right, that you bring this up because it, my my hubby's really into into uh, listening to and examining the Odyssey right okay. now, right? And he's you know trying to understand it in its cultural perspective and in the fact that there's quite a lot in there that yes, it was kind of like the the great shaping work of the Greek culture and people, mm-hmm. yeah, would reference it and you would understand instantly the reference, right? And there's stuff in the Odyssey that seems totally bizarre to the modern person, right? Like sure. what happens to the handmaids, for example. You At know, the end of, yeah, when, yeah. yeah. You're like, what the hell? You know, like when he you kills them? sick bastard. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Right. But right in to the Greek context, they were totally violating all the rules of their society, right? Yes. They, were, they were not, uh, you know, they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And it was such a grave insult to just everything that was their cultural norm that there was, I mean, everyone was like, well, yeah, of course they killed them, you know, duh. You well, know? they had been sleeping with the suitors. Right. That was the issue. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And modern modern uh, modern people tend to take that as, you know, oh, here we go again. Let's, you know, punish women for sexuality. Right. Which, of course, is a common, you know, feminist theme. Right. Yeah. But that's not really what that was about there. Right. Like, mm-hmm. OK, legit that this has been a problem in literature. I'm a feminist. I read a lot of this kind of stuff. Right. But um but that's not what that one, that particular bit was about. It was the fact that they were, you know, letting these people run rampant over, um, you know. Uh, well, they had betrayed the king. House, right? Yeah, they, they betrayed bet- the king. I mean, like betraying somebody is a bad thing. It's treason. No it matter how you, whether it's sexually or lying or wherever it is, like betraying shouldn't be a good thing that you hold up as like, oh, okay, we forget. You know, we could say it's harsh to kill them yeah. in real life, but it's, you know, it's a story and he's trying to make a point, I think, about betrayal at that yes. case. And he's, yes. you know, it's very explicit, you know, in, in what he's like, he's, he doesn't have any gray in Homer, right? right? It's, it's, for, as far as I understand, my reading of it is it's very black and white and, right. you know, that kind of world. And, you know, that, that shaped a whole civilization for hundreds of years, having right. that kind of, right and wrong and this is what's right this is what's wrong and we have to and then rome kind of went in its own way right right and and they kind of defined it a little bit differently right exactly right okay so um my hubby would has also said and you know i think he's got a point here right and i remember touching on this in my english lit class way back when right the cultural um poem right the great cultural poem that uh english culture used to draw upon was the King James Bible, mm-hmm. right? Which, of course, is problematic for both me and you for different reasons, right? You being an atheist, me being a pagan, right? Of yeah. course, we immediately are like, wait a minute here, right? Yeah. And that that's the thing. We're now at a world that is 
post-Christian, right? It's not focused on Christian culture anymore. So what are we, right? And that is, uh, you know, that's that's creating a lot of tension, right? And um, I guess that... uh, Do you think we are post-Christian? I don't know that that's true yet. There's a lot of Christians. Like, it depends what you mean by... Yeah. Okay. No, no, I, not in terms of faith. Like I'm not saying we're, we're post faith necessarily. Right. But I think in terms or the number of people who are Christians, because yes, Christians do vastly outnumber everybody else still. They're, they're not, uh, they're not suffering. Right. They're not the persecuted minority. Right. They're everywhere and they have, you know, they have control of things, but most of our laws, right try to they don't always succeed often they're very grounded in a judeo christian idea of right and wrong but they try to us uh, grow past that right they try to be secular more in yeah they try to be secular right they mm-hmm. try to be secular they try not to preference one faith over another right and um capitalism of course is also secular right and let's face it right this is the world we live in. Capitalism runs the world, right? <clears throat> it wins. It's, you know, I, and I think it's, uh, we're coming to an end of the good that it has been able to do for us too, right? I, it's done lots of good, but I think we're getting to a point where it needs to either grow or change, or we need to develop something else, right? Because mm. we, we're now at a point where wealth inequality is, you know, endemic right and we need to we need to find a better way i don't know what that way is right Mm -hmm. but i'm groping towards it right so okay so 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 yeah we're 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 at a a place where we no longer have the bible right as our mm -hmm. unifying cultural symbol right so what is our unifying cultural symbol do we have one can we exist without one right um as a canadian right i think we can Right. I would argue our country has been trying a grand experiment to see if we can be post-nationalist. Right. Mm. Can we be nationalist about the fact that we're multicultural? Right. Mm. And, you know, I I don't know. We're pretty young, so we can't really say, you know, we we only had our sesquicentennial. Right. One hundred and fifty years of our official country existing. So. That's not nearly enough to say whether or not the experiment has been successful yet or not. But somehow we managed to keep it together despite the fact that it's utterly irrational and should not work. And I think that it is. Our government makes no sense, right? Yeah. It makes no sense. But but we we I think we make it work, and I, I think that in general it's a, an entrenched cultural attitude of mutual respect. Now that's threatened, right? Like, and it's, it's not been, it's not ever been perfect, right? We have huge problems with that. Um, Anglophone, Francophone tensions, right? You guys may have heard, you know, Quebec was thinking about separating a few years back, right? Mm. That's been a tension that's been going on for forever in this country, right? And of course, how we treat our First Nations people has been a huge issue right all the stuff that happens to black people in the u.s the carding the you know systemic racism the you know 
um, overrepresentation in incarceration, right? All of that stuff happens to First Nations people in Canada, right? So it's not like we're immune to racism, right? Obviously, it's a problem, right? But but these, you know, these are these are the problems. But somehow, the country continues to exist, right? Can we do that with the world, right? This is, you know, can this be done? I don't know, right? And I don't know what the answer is. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, Homer had this unifying effect and it was a right and wrong type of mentality that united everybody and, you know, symbolized by or embodied in the killing of the maidens or the, uh, um, what were they called? The... What were, what were they? I don't know. The translation I read was handmaidens. Handmaidens. There so. you go. Yeah, the the women, like the women of the household of Odysseus, who slept with the suitors, who were you know ravaging the land and all that such, <clears throat> and he killed them. And but what that represents is the the cho- choosing of this is right, not betraying is right. Um, you know, betrayal is wrong, and there's punishment. In our time, we're in a chaotic moment where you know you're talking about. A lot of different issues that are going on, but we have to have some kind of future progress. Um, somehow, per- going into the future with a new um, system of thinking about the world, thinking about each other. You mentioned at the end, kind of a world system, you know, kind of unifying the whole world. And if that's something, and and that's um, you know, something that's prevalent in science fiction thinking sometimes, right? Yeah, and it's got its own problems, right? Like, I think one of the big tensions going on right now is the fact that corporations, right, are international, right? They are global, right? But countries are not, right? So then what ends up happening is that often these large multinational corporations end up operating entirely outside of anybody's law because they just move, right? So... You know, they don't if if things don't go their way in the United States, ah, screw it, we'll just move to China, you know, and and they they're amorphous and it becomes more difficult to pin them down. Right. Do we have to adapt a more global polity? But if we do that, then who decides what the rules are for that global polity? There it becomes the problem, you know. If we're going by majority rules, we would all be speaking Chinese, you know, and uh, <laughs> right? Because there's more like majority yeah. vote. Right. Majority vote. If we said, OK, all the world, you know, vote on what your world government will look like. Everybody gets one vote. Right. Mm. If we did that, you know, we'd, we'd all be. You know, it would not look like the world that we understand in North America at all, right? Because, of course, we are vastly outnumbered here compared to the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So, and is that really, you know, of course we don't want that, right? You know, because, you know, I I don't want to have to learn a whole new language and culture at 43 enough to, you know, get along in it that well, you know, understand it well enough to visit and not piss anybody off. That's great, you know? But yeah, it's it's complicated, right? It's and I I don't uh, I don't know that that's the answer either. But I guess that's what science fiction is about. Let's imagine different futures and where they could go wrong and where they could go right. So okay, so part of it is science fiction can imagine those things. 
how often does, besides certain technology, how often do you think science fiction has pushed some pushed a society in that direction and in a direction based on its own ideology or connected um, a group of individuals. So obviously there's science fiction fans, right? But what great literature like Homer did for Greece or Dante for Italy or Chaucer for England, you know, and that, that whole, these, these people unified, Part of it is because they were unifying the language. The Grimm brothers actually did something very similar. They were, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the word. They studied language. Was that they weren't actually just writers? They studied language and they, you know, wrote the Grimm's fairy. Like it, it wasn't for kids. It was actually the Grimm's no. tales of, fa- of yes. You know, and it was supposed I've read to be the unified. originals. No, oh, okay. those are not kids' books. No, no they're not kids' <laughs> books know. at all. Yeah, and they, they, they but they wrote it all in German very explicitly and on purpose to, they were one of their goals and, and it eventually worked was to help to unify the Prussian empire with, you know, the Prussians into an actual country. And, the, and then you get nationalism not too long after you get. So the point is that these, these pieces of literature, and then of course there's all the literature underneath it that kind of built on that, right? Like it wasn't just Dante. It was all the poems after that as well. that kind of built on the tradition. It wasn't just Cervantes in Spain, it was all the, the Spanish works that we may not know of as much afterwards that kind of also people, you know, passed on and, and used. So I'm just, but we live in such an odd time because a lot of that work has already been done. And we now live, you know, and or at least we maybe we think that, although it may not be true, maybe in 10,000 years, we'll look back and see all this chaos as its own kind of unifying into its unique way that we don't know about. Right. So, you know, does science fiction play a role in that or is it not literary enough? Oh, okay. Yeah. There's, there's an, uh, another touch argument. <laughs> I believe the literary fiction is its own genre. You do or you don't? I do. I, yeah, it oh. is. I, I think of it. Okay. Right. Often, you know, people who are fans of lit- literature, right. will say, Oh, well, you know, science fiction is all about little green men and you know, that nonsense. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, Right. But, and I write real literature, right? Real fiction. No, you don't. There, there's style uh, uh, conventions that are part of literary fiction, right? Mm-hmm. I love literary fiction. I read a lot of it, right? And I would say that it has, you know, just like science fiction has its own style conventions, romance has its own style conventions, it has its own style conventions, right? If you're talking about literature in terms of the broad span of the important books that shaped, and poems, right? And books and poems that shaped people, shaped societies. Well, of course, science fiction's in there, right? Uh, Gulliver's Travels is pure fantasy, right? You know, and most people today agree the very first book of modern science fiction, as we would understand it, is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Well, the modern Prometheus, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, Frankenstein not being its actual title, but, you know, and okay, we can, we can talk about that. You said what, uh, what, what science fiction has done that, what has had a shape. Definitely Frankenstein has shaped our view, right? Because when Mary Shelley wrote it, right, there was, there was that tension between faith and science that Mm -hmm. was going on at the time. It was, you know, does science mean that it negates? Well, we could still say it still goes on. Yeah, we're still fight. You're right. We're still having that fight. I don't we know sure that are, it's gone right? yet. 
<laughs> yeah, we we are. We're still we're still arguing about that. We're still wondering. We're still questioning. Um, and everybody's got to find their own answer with that, right? Um, but you know, certainly, I I'd say, and I know that's gonna you know other people are gonna disagree with me, and that's fine. You're allowed to believe whatever you want, but in my opinion, it uh, definitely makes sure that you can't take it literally. Faith, literally, mm. if science. You know, if it, there's value in faith, there's value in the mythology of any faith, right? But it's obviously myth, right? And myth has value psychologically, but maybe it isn't history, right? Mm. So that's my own opinion, right? Obviously, but um, but yeah, that that was the question, right? Are we messing with stuff that we shouldn't be messing with, right? Are we playing God? And we're here. We are. This is what the modern era is all about, right? Um. In uh, I, I read a lot of classic science fiction recently. I, I decided I was going to read this list called the SF Masterworks, hmm. and it features – it's an imprint that publishes, in a lot of cases, lesser known uh, science fiction works that had a huge influence on the genre and on culture. Is Hawthorne right? in there and, and Poe? Uh, Hawthorne is, yeah. Not Poe? Not yet, but that doesn't mean that okay. uh, it, it won't be, right? Because, but, um, but okay, so I, I've read a lot of turn of the 20th century science fiction recently, stuff written around the 1900s. And these were modern people, right? Because, I mean, we think of this as, you know, oh, that was like more than 100 years ago, whatever, you know, these people. No, okay, th- these people were aware they had the power to destroy the earth. Mm. And it scared the shit out of them, just like... The atom bomb scares the shit out of us, and climate change scares the shit out of us. They were scared, mm-hmm. right? They they thought chemical warfare was going to destroy the world, right? Mm-hmm. Or gasoline. They were aware that running out of gasoline was going to create a huge crisis, right? They were, you know, they they were very conscious of it. And I think that you know maybe maybe it wasn't the first book that did it, but it was certainly the first widely known book that did it. Right. Mary Shelley questioned. She was the first one that said, "Okay, are we unleashing disaster here? Right. Have we gone too far? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think I think we need to think about that. Right. We need to think about science as a as a sword. You know, I I guess like, uh, you know, like uh, George (laughs) R. Martin said about sorcery. Right. It's a sword without a hilt. There's no safe way to grasp it. Right. Hmm. Oh, that's a horrible image. I just, Isn't it double, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I so I, I used to read a lot of fantasy. That was my first um, foray into. Like I, I read a lot of that as a kid. I read some science fiction, um, but mostly fantasy, and yeah, pretty much strongly fantasy until I was like eighteen. <clears throat> and then I got. That? I'm a fantasy writer and fan too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, mine was like, like it might have been more, I don't know, I haven't read your stuff yet, but maybe yours is more like, mine was more like, um, you know, elves and dragons and, you know, like that that type of stuff. The, uh, I'm trying to remember the names of all these ones. Like there's one of my favorites was the character's name was, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I just read it. Drist Dorden, right? What's what? Drist Dorden. Yeah, that's the one. Is that how you pronounce it? I pronounce it like Drizzit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, a- I looked it up. At one point, they had uh, a site that had all the drow pronunciations. Drow, that's right. So, yes, I read that I'm, such, I'm so that long. kind of nerd. I looked that stuff up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I love those books, too. 
Yeah, so it's it's yeah. interesting. I stopped reading those though, so I haven't read as much. I'm you know, I so for instance, I haven't read George R. R. Martin at all. Um, but I have seen the series, of course, because the right. series is amazing. Um, but so in the 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 issue of literature and how it applies to our own lives, it seems that that genre, just as an example, does affect a group of people, right? So it doesn't affect everybody necessarily. Although no. we we could talk about how it does affect the broader society, but it does, you know, um, a group of individuals who choose to read that kind of fiction are affected in a certain way and now whether that's good or bad you know i don't know it's an interesting question and maybe that's one thing that doesn't make it as high literature because it doesn't reach into a broader audience i don't know if maybe that's how you def how, how one has to define literature is that it does have a wider that could be effect there's um, a legit argument for that yeah you know, sure. I, don't, I don't know so like mary shelley had a huge enormous effect one so I actually wrote, I was listening to your sci-fi panel and right. I, um, you know, I had a couple of moments. I was like, I wanted to say something. I wish I was there. And, uh, <laughs> which is good. Type like, it in the know. comments. <clears throat> Excuse me. Comments. What's that? Type it in the comments. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's, I, you know, I have YouTube pr uh, premium, so I was just listening to it actually. So it's okay. like, it's hard to, but anyway, so one of the things, um, I forgot what I was going to say. It was, uh, yeah, so some I, some of you guys were talking about marketing. Now, I, my background is marketing and sales, so it's very interesting to hear the perspective. Now, not book marketing and sales. Like, I'm still learning that a lot. It's it's um very unique in a lot of ways because you're dealing with something very abstract. You know, like I can sell vacuum cleaners, I can sell knives, I can sell rate, I can sell anything physical. That's not a problem. But when you get into intellectual things, it's very very tricky yes. um, because you're dealing with something much more complex so there's more way more parts to it you know with a knife there's only so much i mean technically you could use it like as a screwdriver as a murder weapon you can use it as a lot of things but generally a kitchen french chef knife it's like a couple uses to it and you, you know you're, you're selling it within a very limited delimited area so it's very easy to sell ideas are, are a whole other category so my point is that it was it was interesting hearing you guys talk about you know, marketing books. And I actually recently on Troubadour Magazine wrote an, arg an, um, an article, an essay, arguing against writing to the masses at all today. Mm -hmm. And thinking about influence in a completely different way is what I'm trying to get at. And I, maybe some other people have already argued this, and I have gotten this from other mar marketers. Like I read a lot of Seth Godin and, and a lot of mar like big-time marketers today that um, talk a lot about this. And, and how to market their own books and other books and whatever and anything. Um, and one of the things that was interesting was um, what you were talking about with the turn of the century writers, they were writing very popular, like pretty much everybody who could read, a lot of them would read pulp magazines, right? Like the pulp. And they, they wrote, they had a very specific way of writing, which was, very ephemeral, like the, the expectation was that it was going to vanish, right? They were going to throw it away. And there, there was even a terms that came about, uh, and I think our whole writing structure and the way that we use English language today has been affected by this. <clears throat> and blogs are very similar in the, in the sense that, you know, there's not like the, people don't put the time into it that they would with a monk, you know, in the uh, 1300s, right? Like a, he might spend his whole life dedicated to one or two main big, 
you know, like like Dante, right? Like like the guys who or, or Homer. Like if you're gonna focus, if you're a monk, you're focusing on Homer. You're gonna really spend your whole life perfecting that and making it as beautiful as possible, right? Today, people just punch out stuff. They don't check grammar. Like nothing, nothing happens. It's just like stream of consciousness, but worse because there's not even thought behind it, right? And a lot of that, I think, really was exacerbated or began with the pulps in the 1900s. I mean, you, you know, like, yeah. and, and where the idea was, well, this is going to be destroyed anyway. And, the, you know, the print itself, like, it was, it's called pulp because of the material was pulp and it would break yeah. apart very quickly. It was very cheap material. And you even get, like, with newspaper, like, an, 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 if I were to attack you as a writer, I'd say, you know, as a fiction writer, I'd say something like, you know, you write like yesterday's newspaper, right? Like the idea yeah, is that yeah. it's gone already. Like it's yesterday and it's already, you know, it's, it's, right. it, you sure. put it, you put it in under your birdcage so your bird poops on it. And that's, that's, <laughs> a, that's all it's worthwhile for. So there's something that's been lost. I don't know if it can ever come back for the masses. I, I you know, I don't know how that would work. Um, or, or when I say masses, I should say the literate masses. That's one of the, Distinctions, because as literacy increased, we saw a decrease in the level and the depth of the writing. So you could argue that today a lot of people can read a menu, but they, there's very few people who could read Dante, right? And so, and that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. And so the argument that I put in the, um, the article, it, it's called uh, Pulp in the Wind, and the, the, the argument is basically right to the end. So one of the things I'm trying to do with romanticism is heighten the language a little bit, right? It's one thing I think is it's missing. Tough. And it's what, tough. what I, I hope people will, will try to do. And, you know, I don't want to alienate people. I want to, like, if you're a normal person who's just working at, you know, as a, as a salesperson as I have, that you'll challenge yourself to, to heighten. But my expectation is that you will chat, like raise the level for yourself. If you're going to like, so I don't think elitism is a bad word, right? Like it's not a pejorative to be elite. Elite has been always the top crust of society. And that, in my view, those are the, the people who choose to be the most literate. So you could read, you know, again, there's a difference between reading a stop sign and Chaucer. And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. Now, I'm, I don't think we have to all sure. be Chaucer's. But there's so many writers today. So the, the magazine is designed not just, or my goal is not just for readers, but it's to, I want to build a community of writers. And okay. the thing that I see a lot of is all the, there's a lot of, there's more writers today, just like there's more readers than ever in the history of humanity True. by far. And there's way more writers writing nonsense than ever needs to be written ever. <laughs> like a lot Probably of it. True. <laughs> and what I would hope is that some of them would take some of the time to create something that's a little bit higher for a smaller audience. I have an argument as to why that's not happening. Okay, go for it. Okay, economics, right? Yeah. When, when people were spending their lives in monasteries focusing on this great work, right, or they would have a patron who would, you know, say, fund the, the creation of the Sistine Chapel. Right. Yeah. They didn't have to worry about where their meals were coming from. Right. They had someone who was providing all that and they had room to create stuff. Modern writers all have to have a day job. The income for writers is 
falling every year. There's just been a couple of articles that were put out. One was in the Guardian. One was in uh, the Toronto Star, right, focusing on Canadian writers that are talking about how the median income for writers is gradually declining. And part of the reason is that the system is kind of broken, right? We're in, we're in a, a current state where, uh, you know, Amazon broke the market, right? So there's there's no there's so many independent writers out there, right? I'm a hybrid writer. I'm both independent and traditionally published in different venues, so I kind of know both worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so much that's out there. It's just this, you know, and it's really hard to get heard in the middle of all that noise, right? How do I convince you to read my book as opposed to someone else's? You don't have time to read all the books that are out there, right? You're working all the time too. You don't, you don't have time for this, right? So I have to try to convince you to read my book and in independent writing, um, quantity matters over quality. The people who are making a living at it, right? There's a guy who's done, uh, um, like uh, 50, I don't know, 50 books to 50K, right, is his... Uh, 50 books um, to 50K? Yeah, 50K is in $50,000 a year, right? Okay, how he's making a living writing is by churning out a new book every month, right? Hmm. And his readers love it, right? They love it. They think it's great. I can't do that. I, I cannot write a book in a month. It takes me a year to, to write a book, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah me know, too. Several years sometimes. Yeah, right? So it's, That's why I've only written one book. <laughs> so there's, there's why that's happening, right? And in uh, traditional publishing, right, um, they're getting squeezed out more and more. The small publishers are getting squeezed out by Amazon, right? And the uh, large publishers are less and less willing to take chances on new writers and new ideas, right? They want to publish proven names, Right. Or famous people who've written a book so people will read it because they're the famous people. Right. Because it's a big investment. Right. Mm-hmm. To print that many books, especially as, you know, the cost of paper goes up and the cost of, you know, all this stuff. Right. So between the two, it's becoming more and more difficult for writers to make a living. If we had some method of paying writers, right, with a basic income so that they could write, we would have bigger books and better books. I think. Well, but so you have the argument, you're, you're making an argument of going back to gatekeepers, mm-hmm. which essentially the problem with gatekeepers is that they also say no to people who probably deserve to say yes to. Right. Right. They don't so, want to take the chance. And why should no, they? Even, they, even, but they not, have stockholders to answer to. They, they have dividends that they have to provide. They have an obligation as the board of, of, of a company to continue to you know, raise stock value, right? So any new writer is a total risk because like you say, ideas are hard to market. Who knows what's going to take off, right? You never do. Yeah. But what I'm saying, so it sounds like your argument is that there's a problem with economics. Yeah. That that writers today aren't getting paid, right? Pretty much, yeah. I guess that really is the heart of it, yeah. So That's what I'm saying. So, But the question is, in the past, was it better in the past when there were gatekeepers who said no to, to writers that should have been said yes to? That's an argument that, you know, again, it depends on the situation. Maybe not, right? In Mary Shelley's time, you had to be independent, well, independently wealthy in order to worry about writing, you know? Um, <clears throat> even when Virginia Woolf was writing, she said, a woman must have a room of her own in order to write, 
you know, which was actually not that common then, right? So, you know, she was saying you had to have a certain amount of means, yeah. right? Um, you know, um, Robert E. Howard took his own life at the age of 30 because of the constant struggle that he had, right? You know, creator of Conan the Barbarian and Solomon Kane and, you know, stuff that's considered to be classic fantasy and sword and sorcery and arguably the inventor of the Weird West genre, right? Hmm. And uh, because when the Depression happened, all the pulp magazines went out of business, mm-hmm. right? Or they were... You know, like he he was owed something like twenty five thousand dollars from Weird Tales when he died. And mm. this is in nineteen thirty something, right? So I don't remember the year he died, but you know, so yeah, it's it's always been a problem, right? I don't uh <laughs> maybe crowdfunding is is a way to, to look into that, you know, maybe that's that's a solution, right? Instead of having a wealthy patron, you have a bunch of small donations, you know. Well, but that's also uncertain, you know. Well, but there are a lot of authors doing that. Yes, there like are. a lot. Of, there are indie authors who are making that work. Um, so I have I'll, a modest Patreon right now. It's you know, it's a few bucks a month. It's not huge yet. Yeah, but yeah. It's I do it because you know you got to do what you got to do, right? Well, so I mean. The question to me seemed, I mean, the, the original thing we were talking about, I think, in this regard was about how authors can impact society and, and mm-hmm. how, right, like in the past, it was gatekeepers. Today, we have too, so many writers, you know, I was talking about my article, Pulp on the Wind, and the ar- argument was, go after the, the more elite intellectuals, and that's how you can impact society. And you were saying the problem with that is economics, right? And that they don't get paid enough. So, one, that's not 100% true that it's true that independent people don't, but there are intellectuals at academia. Like, they're the ones who, for instance, they're in, they're teaching, and they're getting paid, but they're also pumping out books. That's the expectation. They, they affect the, the intellectuals more than we think, right? True. And the, like, the intellectuals who write but articles. But they're not writing fiction, are they? Right. They're writing nonfiction based on their field, which they have tenure in. Right. And it's their, um, you know, their training that they're getting paid for, not their writing. The, the writing is a side effect to illustrate their training. The writing is a side effect. So like a literary writer, you're saying the, the writing of a book. Oh, no, no, that's different. Writers and residents are a totally different animal. Right. If, well, if I mean, like like a literature teacher, like an English literature teacher who writes on literary theory, for instance. Yeah, you're right. That's not a highly competitive field, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 You're right that they exist and they're a thing and they're, you know, making they're they're doing okay. You know, and that's cool. I'm I'm glad of that. I'm glad that that such a thing does still exist. Well, yeah. so so okay, so and then you're saying that there's not the the uh, they're not writing fiction, which is true. I agree. I mean, most of them are not writing much fiction. I mean, some of them are, but most of them are not. Yes, I agree. And so the impact that fiction is having is from the students of those people, probably, right? The people who go. And then the biggest impact, of course, is in movies and television. That's where on the masses. But if you look at a lot of the people who are writing and directing and producing those, a lot of them do go to Ivy League or Columbia. or yeah, Like a lot of them are from sure these, these, uh, these very elite organizations. But... <laughs> I'm losing track of the argument I was trying to make. That I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It's my own fault. The, the, the argument. I was, <laughs> what's that? I didn't mean to derail. No, no, it's okay. Like 
it's it's interesting because the argument I'm trying to make is simply we have this new model. The new model seems to uh, for writers. The new model gives writers who I don't think would have actually had an opportunity in the past. So that's so, true. Like the I can't the, argue with the that. romantic notion is that you know the romantic notion everybody has in their life is like you go to a tarot card reader and you know the whole joke is and you're a prince or a princess and you're a brave knight. Probably you were a peasant who died at twenty, you know, who was shoveling yep. shit their whole life, right? That's like right. that's more likely what your life would have been like in the that's past. True. And that's like every that's like ninety nine percent of the world is like that, um, and and that's what it would have been. And so there's this romantic notion. It's like, well, if I would have been a, you know around the time of um, astounding, you know, and and um, weird stories like those, the the pulp era, I would have been you know an Asimov or an, I would have been in that circle. Probably not. Like those three out of thousands, even at that time. Let alone if you had more people, um, you know, during this, you know, during this time. The opportunity today is that you now have control. Like you now have the ability to fight to get your own readership, which in the yes. past was almost impossible. Like without a good amount of money, you couldn't in the past. Today, to me, the, what technology has allowed is for us, you know, people who are from the outsiders who, who don't have that kind of upbringing and education, you know, like in the elite schools, which I didn't, you know, have any of that, that we have the opportunity to try to build through marketing techniques, through learning sales, through those types of things, what all these traditional companies have spent billions of dollars and decades perfecting, we can, one, learn from them, and then two, we can apply a lot of that in a new environment, and we have the flexibility of we don't have or need the overhead that they do. So, You're you know, not like, wrong. Um, you, I, you are, I, I would agree with you. Right. So the the like the the thing today is called um, by Kevin Kelly a, th a thousand true fans. So I don't know if you've heard of that theory. Sure. So yeah. like I, that I think is very accurate. Like if you can make you know a hundred thousand dollars a year, that's a really good living for anybody. Yes. Right. I like, would be perfectly. I I once worked it out, and if I had a hundred thousand dollars a year, I would never want for anything. That would be that would be the ideal income for me. Yeah, I mean that that's more than enough by yep. far. Now that's hard. It's not easy to get to that. No. And you know, even making seventy five, eighty thousand is still really good. You know, there's yep. there's a lot of good numbers that you can reach, you know, depending on what you want to you know, if you want to be living in a like a lavish house, like I don't need things like that personally. Um, you know, I have my motorcycle and I'm happy. And, right. Uh, so like and, and you know, nice computer and things and, and microphones to talk to people. But other than that, I don't need a ton of stuff. So my point is that we have this opportunity to make this impact that are, are what we need to learn as, as a community of writers. And this is what I'm trying to do with Troubadour magazine. What we need to learn is one, how to market to, you know, elite people, but also get people to think a little bit better. And with all these writers who are just pumping out blogs that aren't very good, which is pretty much everybody who's a blogger, I think like for the most part, there's, yeah. exceptions. there's exceptions. Well, I have blogs too. I, don't get me wrong. I'm putting myself in that category. I'm saying there's something about the nature of blogging. That's just generally lower quality because of the mentality we have going into it. But if we could try to, you know, build a community that focuses on that, I think that's a valuable thing that we could all work together to kind of heighten people and then bring in readers by, for instance, translating in a some in a more modern way great works of literature. You know, translating Othello. Like, don't make somebody, don't make the plumber read um, Othello. He's not going to, but make him read a modern 
you know, version of it that that could, sure. you know, in a different, a short story based on it or something like that, you know, fairy tales and, and mythology and Wiccan, you know, things like that. So, so that, so I think there's a, there's a value that the community can be built. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a good thing to work for, um, work toward. And I, I think there's definitely a, a way to make a market work and to, and to go for it. My own experience supports your theory, right? Um, <clears throat> a couple different uh, examples, right? Um, I ended up getting into a Twitter conversation with Kat Rambo, who is the current president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, right? Hmm. And it was basically uh, kind of whining, really, about the difficulty of breaking into the industry, right? And so we got to talking, right? And because... It, it's legit, right? And um, SIFWA, right? That's how they pronounce the SFWA acronym, right? They have actually a lot of things that they do to try to outreach to independent writers or, you know, writers who are from disadvantaged backgrounds or whatever. They do a lot, right? But it's hard to get the message out there, right? So anyway, uh, she needed someone to manage the YouTube channel. This is how you ended up with the science fiction panel that you watched. I Mm. Uh, save the archive onto my own channel, but it originally aired on the SIFWA official YouTube channel. Oh, cool. Right, where we have a regular program called The Panel, which uh, discusses matters of science fiction and fantasy, and another one called Spec Women Chat, which is the same thing, but for women and women writers and editors and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay, so then I ended up doing that, right? Through that, I met a lot of really you know, people who are really involved in my field and they're giving science classes. fiction. Yeah. Science fiction and fantasy, right? They're giving classes. They're, you know, teaching their skills. They're organizing collective movements. They're, you know, they're reaching out. They're, they're, they're out there. Right. And they want to talk to people and they want to help. Right. So I made a lot of good connections. I started figuring out tools that I didn't know how to use. Right. I managed to get some pro publications happening through these, you know, the information and the connections that I picked up, the marketing techniques, right, all of this stuff, right. Um, independently, generally things do better when they're collective efforts, right. There's all kinds of groups of independent writers who, like, for one example, something called the Sci-Fi Roundtable, right. And this is a group of uh, independent science fiction writers who are you know, they, they do anthologies, they, you know, organize promotional events, right, and stuff like that. But it takes a while, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's the frustrating thing. It takes a while to build up the snowball, right? Or you could go the traditional publishing route and you can hopefully get through the slush pile or hopefully get an, an agent, right? And this is where the gatekeepers come in. They still exist there, mm -hmm. right? And I watched Bain's, uh, Bain Books um slush pile thing they did a slush session and they showed how it was done and they read like the first two paragraphs of the novel that you spent like a year writing and another year editing and another year agonizing over and it takes a year for them to get through the slush pile to your novel and then they read the first two paragraphs and decide whether or not they want your book mm -hmm. right that's the way they have to do it I know, I know. They don't have time to do anything else. I'm not, I'm not angry at them. Yeah. I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong. They're not. It's just this huge volume of material. I well, just edited the... my first anthology. Believe me, I get it. Yeah. Right? The amount of submissions, the quality of submissions. I had to tell a friend no. You know, I had to tell. I had to refuse stories that I really liked because I just didn't have the space. I get it, right? I but. 
but you know, it's, it's again, part of that, you know, getting your noise out there. And I guess it's like you say, right? Most writers, you know, if you're going to go into career writing, you resolve yourself to maybe being one of those people who's going to have to keep your day job and get a supplementary income, right? You know, because that's about what 99% of you are going to do. 99% of us. Well, I didn't say that actually, but I, I think <laughs> a lot of people have to, a lot of people have to do that. I said, you know, think about a thousand true fans and building toward that. So I think the, the goal is to get rid of the day job so you could focus on writing. Right. So that way you're, you're getting to a good place. The view is that you always have to have a day job. Another option is cut out all the crap in your life and don't spend a lot of money and then, you know, focus more on writing. If you have no life and all you do is write and work, then yeah, eventually you'll get there. And, yeah. and that's cool, right? If, I mean, that's, I, I'm pretty much a bear. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, my, my point is like, you just have to figure out what works yeah. for you. Right. Um, I don't, so when we're talking about like what it makes to be a writer, I don't know. Um, because there are some writers, you know, who they, they work full time and, you know, something they love, you know, and mm-hmm. they, they're like a lawyer, like, um, What's his name? Not Tom Clancy. Like, you know, there's, I can't remember his name, but there's um, lots of writers like that where they're, they're a, uh, you know, a full-time lawyer or something. They write on the side sure. and, we, what's, and then they, they become a big hit right away or very quickly. Um, right. The writer that got me, um, that really was my first inspiration was somebody named Terry Goodkind. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know Terry. So Terry, like yeah. the, the story with me real quick is he, I, I got his book at 15 I read he had the first five books at that time of the Sword of Truth series. The sixth one came out. And that one like impacted me. I was 16 years old. Huge impact. And then two years later, I read an interview and he said of him and he said his big inspiration was Ayn Rand. And that that led me into reading uh, Objectivism and Ayn Rand. And she's been a big influence on me intellectually as well. She's a very interesting author. And um, but he was interesting because he like very quickly was a success you know he had the biggest bid in the history of tour or something like that like they bid millions of dollars on his first book which rarely ever happens right, right? and and it's probably the last time something like that will ever happen because that was in the 90s and yeah, just, like right before you know you had amazon coming out a couple of years later like two years later or something like that so the point is that the slush pile thing you're talking about like there's different avenues to get there mm-hmm. and i think what we're ultimately talking about is how you know, we, we've kind of shifted into how writers can can think about this new market that we live yes. in, which is a new yes. technology. You know, this we goes back to, learn to how to design. navigate the new market. You're absolutely right, and the market always changes, right? We can whine about it and go, "Oh well, you know, right? It's you know ruining everything." And you know, it would be nice if somebody put some like limits on Amazon. That'd be good. But what kind of they limits do, would you put? Oh, I don't know. I just think it needs to be broken up a bit, (laughs) right? Antitrust. Yeah. I I think, I think it, I think it's too big and that's, well, we're winding down. So maybe that's a conversation for another time. I I wouldn't agree with that. Um, but I, I, go ahead. What else? No, no, but you're right. Like the market, you know, we got to learn to navigate the new market, right? So, and the, the market always changes, especially when it comes to anything. What is one thing that writers in your opinion can do? to navigate this new market? I really think you have to be online. I think it's got to be done, right? I'm, 
okay, like I uh, I have social anxiety issues, right? I don't. Yeah. I, I'm probably. I know I'm probably not coming across right that, yeah. but I've learned to fake it pretty well. <laughs> I know what's expected of me in a podcast in a conversation. Right? Okay. So I'm. I'm. Yeah. I can. I can. You do have a lot it. of energy. That's good. Thank you. I'm pretty enthusiastic about what I do, so I guess yeah. that comes across. But that's really yeah, what it's all about. I think so. Yeah, you too. Obviously, you're really passionate about what you're doing, and that's. Yeah. Well, I'm introverted too. I think a lot of writers of fiction are going to be introverted. Yes. I would imagine. Yes. So we're a little scared to get on camera and put ourselves out there, but you kind of have to if you're going to connect with people. Because people in the modern market, they no longer—they're not just interested in what you wrote anymore. They're interested in who you are and where the idea came from and why you would approach. Is that true? Mm-hmm. I think. I think it is, yeah. And I think it applies to everything. I mean, like, you know, why are reality shows so popular? Who really gives a shit about what the Kardashians do on their day off? I don't care, you know, but people care, right? You know, yeah. people are interested in who they are. How do these rich people live? What What are they like, you know? People well, I, want to but know I think about there's, a, there's a fragmentation of the market that's happened. Yes. That, that you have to think about. That and this is where I'm saying a lot of the the thousand true fans comes into play. Where the type of person who would watch a Kardashian's not going to read, you know, a, a reality show with Kardashians, they're never in a million years going to read Troubadour magazine or anything on it. That's probably true. But yeah. there's there's a lot of people who will read that, especially in a world market where English is more and more growing. There's definitely more opportunities for people to read that stuff if you know how to market it. There's right. never been more of an opportunity for that. That's quite true. I, I so you're right. I, I'm not disagreeing with you that there's a you have to be online. And I think that's where the opportunity is. I think don't underestimate physical and being no person. But but you're right. You, it's very helpful to be online. Yes, um, we do have this very fragmented market though, and what that means, you know, and a lot of people in marketing tend to think of these big things rather than th- like thinking about like. I want to reach 18 to 24 year olds. Well, it's like, there's a lot of different types of 18 to 24 year olds, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, you could try to reach the, you know, 18 to 24 year old career ambitious San Franciscan who's liberal, right? And um, lesbian or gay, right? You could, that's right. a whole market. Like there's a market of yeah. probably, a, you know, a couple hundred thousand people like that or, you know, in the Bay Area or whatever, right? Um so there's a lot of things that you can, this is where I am right now. That's why I'm thinking that right. way. But, but sure. my point is that you could think very specifically. And then when you market your stuff, if you know how to do it, you market to that person and you tell the story of your book, for instance, even if your book, like don't write your book to that audience necessarily, unless you want to, but, um, you know, write the book and then think who would first be able to reach this. It's like you guys were talking about, um, what's that? Good advice. No, you're right. Because you guys were talking on that, that panel about, you know, you're, you're these cross hybrids, a lot of you, right? You're, there's, there's Western, steampunk, fantasy, you know, um, w- Wicca, uh, all in one thing. So how do you market it? Well, it seems like you would just tell different stories completely, right? You know, like tell a story to people who, you know, who likes steampunk right now? Like, I don't know that market at all, um, but you could try to find, you know, maybe nerdy 20 year old kids who are going to certain colleges and try to market your book to those kids like get into the steampunk world like that's how it seems like writers need to take control of their marketing and think about it and learn marketing very similarly to learning the craft of writing 
Is it yeah, seems to be like so what much. you have to do. I think you do. Yeah, I think it is. Not that it's easier than I haven't figured out, by the way. I no, know. Um, no, clearly it's not, right? And it's something that we don't think about, right? Like we like to think we're all going to be Hemingway and we're going to, you know, live in our little office and write our books and, you know, get frustrated and toss things into the trash can when it's not <laughs> going our way. And then our book is magically going to be a success for us, right? And that's not even true of, tradi- of traditionally published bestsellers now, right? Yeah. You have to kind of try to engage with your audience and – you know, you have to you have to market your own work because if you don't, nobody else will. Do you know the story of the Sisterhood of the Traveling or the, the Yaya Sisterhood book? Rebecca oh, okay, Wells. I think? Take away my feminist card, but no, I have not read it yet. Well, no, I haven't read the book, the but I was just curious about the story. If you know the story behind it, so this is another Malcolm Gladwell okay. story. It's very interesting. Um, so Malcolm Gladwell does a lot of writing about marketing, which is very <clears throat> helpful to understand. And he, that, that story is very helpful. It's been a while since I've read it, but I would recommend reading about her and what she did Okay. because she, um, um, she, you know, she wrote a book before that. It wasn't very successful. She convinced the publishers to give her another chance with the Yaya sisterhood book. It did not do well for a while. Um, and, but she was, she's actually an actress and what she would do is she would go around and she would perform the book a little bit. And then she did mm-hmm. it in San Francisco, and then you know she she figured it was a flop, right? No, nothing would ever happen with it. But then eventually she um, got a call like five six months later and said that they were sold out all of a sudden, and they had no idea why. Huh. And what had happened, they realized, is that because of the nature of the book and where she was advertising it heavily, it got picked up by um, in San Francisco by book clubs, mostly by women. And it would often be grandmothers giving it to mothers, giving it to daughters. And, uh-huh, and so it would be okay. like this whole yeah. tradition because it's built into – there's a community built into it. So there's a whole way that Malcolm Gladwell kind of broke down the elements of how that became one of the biggest successes of the last 20 years. And um, it was a marketing – I mean it was a marketing success, but a lot of it was built on how she wrote it, right? Like she wrote it where the whole premise of the story is the passing down of knowledge, Right from uh, mothers to daughters and, you know, women, you know, the, the right. Yaya sisterhood. And so that's not to say that you have to write everything as a marketing thing, but that doesn't hurt when you're thinking mm-hmm. about writing. Like maybe, you know, and also there's something called like an anchor in marketing where you have an anchor product. Have you heard of this idea? I have heard of it, yeah. So, yeah, an anchor product. So it's something I've been thinking about is like, how can I write something that would attract people to my audience, to my stuff, and then they can maybe explore the backlog, right? right. That's a little bit deeper. Um, so an anchor is like, you know, it's, it's a product that you buy this one thing of this, pro- this company is I'm going to buy this. And that leads you to looking at the whole catalog. You know, you right. bu- like I bought my first Harley. That's an anchor product, obviously. And you yeah. buy the Harley. It's like, oh, well, you got to get the helmet. You got to get the saddlebags. You got to get this. You got to get, oh, you got to get the cool yeah. task, right? You got to have the yeah. whole thing. Um, so that's, that's, that's a huge anchor. Um, but anyway, just some interesting, I, I, I think about this, it's something I'm trying to apply, um, to writing the, these kind of marketing principles. It's very hard. I don't have it figured out and I'm always, you know, hoping for more help from people who want to teach me how they've had success. So, before we leave though, cause I know you got to go, I, I did want to ask you about your own writing before we left and, and you're, you know, like what, what, you have this anthology. You have your own fiction in there as well, I would imagine. I do, of course. So why don't yes. you tell us real quickly about that, 
the the anthology like what kind what can we expect in that kind of in the book Sure. It's called Gunsmoke and Dragonfire, a fantasy Western anthology. And the idea is weird Western stories. So weird Western being a Western where, you know, okay, it's a Western, but then something weird happens, right? And it's, uh, it's a pretty broad genre. It generally tends to apply to horror, like say, you know, cowboys versus zombies or something, mm. right? But, it's also crossed over like science fiction westerns, right? Cowboys like, and aliens. Cowboys and aliens, right? Yeah. That's, Firefly, all that that's you know? weird. That's weird western, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. Um. Uh, the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Okay. Right. Good example. Jonah Hex. I've never read that. I've heard Jonah Hex. I haven't seen it or read it. Dark Tower is kind of polarizing as far. I don't know. Do you read Stephen King at all? I read Desperation when I was a kid. Okay. And um, it, I believe. Okay, so much. I grew up reading Stephen King. He's one of the first um, major authors that I I picked up the Dead Zone when I was ten. Okay, right? and I never went back. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, <clears throat> if you read Stephen King, people, there's two. You know, everybody either loves or hates mm. the Dark Tower. Right. Mm. And there's no. That's ah, okay. You know, like it, it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. So I'm on the love. I think it's amazing. So, okay. right. So that kind of thing, right? Where it's like, you know, it. I tried very hard to pick stories that were Westerns at heart, right? So they were about the things that Westerns are about, you know, about dealing with the, you know, wild frontier or, mm-hmm. you know, trying to establish a new, uh, you know, technology or, you know, a, a marshal trying to keep order or an outlaw trying to escape justice, you know, stuff that revenge, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff that, you know, Westerns are about, but that also had this distinctive weird element that was important to the story and you couldn't have the story without the weird element, right? Mm-hmm. So a balance, right? But it's amazing. Like I, I put this idea out there and mostly what I was doing was looking to create a collective effort where a bunch of writers like myself who are doing things in a similar field might potentially reach a broader audience by combining our effort and our work and our marketing, right? And I ended up attracting an amazing number of, you know, writers that I just thought, you know, I was surprised they would take a chance on my unknown little project, Mm -hmm. right? So there are Amazon bestsellers in there and there are award winners in there and it's amazing stuff, right? So yes, it's coming out March 15th. It's going to be, uh, the pre-order is available on Kindle right now if you're into eBooks, right? If you're not, I have a Kickstarter running to fund the print book and that is uh, just search Gunsmoke and Dragonfire on uh, Kickstarter and you will find it. And these are some really, this is great work, right? These are, I'm, I'm a little intimidated by their mm. talent actually. Okay. So totally that's, check it out. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, we'll check that out. Thank you. I, I feel bad because I wanted to talk about Troubadours, but we talked about so many other interesting things. We'll have to have you back on to talk about Troubadours and you know, other things like that. Discussion, And we'll have to focus on that as like the focus maybe. Yeah. It's such an interesting history. Yeah, there's a lot. I know there's a lot to talk about. And there's a reason why I chose and why I, you know, like, what is romanticism? We didn't really get even dig into what is science fiction. I I have a lot to say about that. Uh, Same thing with horrors. I'm a big Western fan. So, you know, I love. So we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk again for sure. 
Um, and, yeah, uh, let me know. This was a lot of fun, so yeah. you could definitely have me back anytime. Yeah, let me know. Well, thank you so <laughs> much, uh, Diane. Everybody, make sure to check out dianemorrisonfiction.com, and I'm sure I will uh, be talking with her again soon. You definitely will. Thank you so much. This was great.